You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. This is Jerry Bingham, host of Hush Loudly on WGN Plus. But I see it in you, so we gonna walk it out. Is my idea or my question stupid? Well, no. If you're there, it's gonna make people think in ways that they didn't think before. This is why I'm such a big believer that diversity is a strength. Because we need to look at issues from all angles, not just our own. Hi there, this is Valerie Jarrett, and you're listening to Hush Loudly on WGN. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Hush Loudly, where we are always talking to interesting people doing interesting things. As you know, it is my personal goal to redefine the word introvert, which continues to have a negative connotation in this extrovert rewarding world. Introverts lead, introverts are adventurous, we draw energy from within and recharge in solitude, we expend energy in social situations versus our friends, the extroverts who gain energy from social interaction. And my favorite way to describe introverts is that we think, then do, versus extroverts who think while doing. And we all know we're on the spectrum. Some of us are more extroverted. Some of us are more introverted. But we are happy to be talking to our next guest, who I don't know if she's an introvert or not. We're going to ask her that. It doesn't matter, though, because we love her and everything she stands for. But we are thrilled to welcome Valerie Jarrett to Hush Loudly. Welcome, Miss Jarrett. Thank you so much. What a lovely introduction. (laughs) So Valerie Jarrett, if you don't know, she was the longest serving senior advisor to President Barack Obama. She oversaw the offices of public engagement and intergovernmental affairs and chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls. Before joining the White House, she served as the chief executive officer of the Habitat Company in Chicago. She's chairman of the Chicago Transit Board, chairman of the University of Chicago Medical Center Board, chairman of the Chicago Stock Exchange, commissioner of planning and development, and deputy chief of staff for Chicago Mayor Richard Daly. Jarrett has received numerous awards and honorary degrees, including Times 100 Most Influential People. She received her bachelor's degree from Stanford University and her law degree from the University of Michigan Law School. She is currently a senior advisor to the Obama Foundation. Valerie is on the boards of Aerial Capital Management Holdings, to you and Lyft and is board chair of When We All Vote. She is also co-chair of the United State of Women. She is also a senior distinguished fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. So after that hefty bio, I'd like to ask you, I've read and heard you talk about how you were shy as a child, which is something that many of us introverts can relate to. So we all want to know, are you or were you an introvert? Well, yes, I think so. In the the sense that I think 
because I was an only child and spent a lot of time traveling with my parents, I had to learn to entertain myself. Mm-hmm. And and I was also painfully shy for a whole host of reasons that I understand a little bit better now that I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. And so my introversion, introversion, is that the word? Yeah, introversion. Was really, introversion was a, really a way of protecting myself as opposed to my, I think, the personality I have now where I'm much more outgoing and extroverted and mm-hmm. and uh, confident too. So in those early years, I was shy and kind of self-contained and mm-hmm. probably a bit of an, an introvert, but for the reason of protection as opposed to just personality. Mm-hmm. And we all fall along the spectrum. So there are people who are extroverted introverts and introverted extroverts. Um, And so, you know, an introvert can be shy, but I'm also reading that an extrovert can be shy. And of course, Mm -hmm. introvert is not as easily summed up as shy, but that is usually how people immediately sort of respond when they when you ask them what they think an introvert is. And also I'm reading about how you change over the years. So depending on even your age, your position, your work life, whatever's happening in your life, you can go back and forth between the extroversion and and the introversion. So it's all very, very interesting. So have you never taken one of those personality exams like like Myers-Briggs? I have not taken one. You think uh-huh. I should? I think it would be fun to know because in Myers-Briggs specifically, it breaks down into sort of 16 categories. And so I'm an INFP, and so it can be ENFPs and all of these different things. And so my letters stand for uh, my introvertedness, I am intuitive, and the other letters are feeling, so I definitely feel things from people, and then uh, my perception. I'm highly perceptive. And so what it does is it helps you understand better who you are and how people receive you and how you can communicate with others. And so it was very important to my life when I had one in my late 20s at whatever job I was working because as a child, I always felt like I was different and I was more weird because I didn't want to do what everybody else wanted to do. I could read Mm -hmm. for days and I could be on my porch playing with my Barbie dolls by myself and I was okay with that, but all of my friends were the opposite and they wanted to run, jump, and play, which I did that too, but I didn't have time for that all day. I wanted to sit on my porch and be by myself sometimes and I wanted to read. And so even as a teenager and in college going to parties, I'd go, but it wasn't my thrill. It wasn't, I prefer to sit in my room on my couch and chill or read or go out to dinner (laughs) with one person or two people Mm -hmm. versus my friends and roommates go to a party with 200 people and they were jazzed about that and feeding off that energy and I was more in my head. And so we change and even now with me and who I am and what I'm doing, I need to be out there more. And so I do what I have to do, you know, for my job, for my career. And so it's, it's, it's interesting how it's a mix and, and how yeah. we balance each other because the people around me tend to be mostly extroverted as well. So that's mm-hmm. interesting how mm-hmm. we balance and feed off each other. Okay. I'll talk too much about myself now. Okay. So. No, I was very <laughs> fascinated by that. 
So there was something I wanted to comment on in your book, which we're going to spend a little time talking about your book, Finding My Voice, When the Perfect Plan Crumbles, The Adventure Begins. You talked about how thrilled you were to make the calls to a few recipients of the Presidential Medal of Freedom and how it was such a privilege for you. And it was kind of funny as you told the stories about how they received your call. And so I don't know if you realize this, but according to my research, every person that you just happen to mention calling in your book has said that they are an introvert and that the first was Michael Jordan and then the next was Meryl Streep, who is my all-time favorite actor, and Tom Hanks, who I, I love. So you probably didn't know that, but I just had to mention that because they are three of the many people who have said publicly that they are, that are introverts and how they prefer to recharge. Well, you know what? I think oftentimes people who go to acting, mm-hmm. comedians, are oftentimes shy yes. and introverted. And so they might be able to go up on stage and act, but then when they're off stage, they go back to being shy again. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about your being nervous, which you talked about in your book, and how speaking in front of groups years ago, you know, how it was just challenging. And you talked about your mom, Barbara Bowman, who is a trailblazer in her own right here in Chicago and all the work that she's done with the Erickson Institute. Thank you. She gave you a little piece of advice that helped. What did she say and how did it help you? Well, so my nervousness about public speaking began, as you mentioned, when I was very young. And in fact, I remember being traumatized in law school because I got called on twice the first day, I almost didn't go back for the second day because I had to speak in front of the 150 people and I just kind of went blank both times. I'm sure my classmates thought I was an idiot. And I, and I really didn't learn to do public speaking until I worked for the city of Chicago when I was the commissioner of planning and development. And nobody told me that part of my job meant I had to go out and give speeches or I probably wouldn't have mm-hmm. taken the job. But I did get used to it. But each time there's a new challenge, you know, you get those butterflies in your stomach. And so... When I got to the White House and the thought of speaking on that North Lawn with the White House behind me was quite terrifying, to say the very least. And early on in March of 2009, President Obama created the White House Council on Women and Girls, and he asked me to chair the council. And so for the announcement, when he signed the executive order creating it, my mother just happened to be in town. And I was a nervous wreck. The thought of getting up there uh, in the East Room with all the White House press corps there and introducing President Obama. I was so nervous and I thought, well, maybe he can just go out there and talk. And then I thought, well, that's not very empowering to other women. Right. I'm going to share it. I should go do this. Right? right. And my mom, my mom just happened to be in Washington that day. So of course I invited her to the ceremony and she took one look at me and she's like, oh, you're going to be fine. She said, you know what? Just because you're nervous doesn't mean people have to know it. You can just go up there and pretend, which is back to the point about actors, you know, doing the they pretend. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what, you're right. And so I did pretend, but I was really, really most concerned, not so much about my speech, but like not falling down as I walked up those steps to the podium. I was so frantic. I was like, please, please don't fall. Because then what do you do? You're sprawled out in front of the press. It's like, (laughs) I a little embarrassing. So embarrassing, but this is the other thing I think, and I've gotten better at at this, you know, we're all a work in progress, is like, so what? 
you know, people fall, things happen, you say the wrong word. And I think the more experience you have and when you do flub and you realize the world didn't come to an end, mm-hmm. and if you can laugh at yourself, I think that that has helped me kind of cope with some of my anxiety as well, thinking, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And once you can kind of visualize that and say, okay, I can survive. And people stumble, people make mistakes, mm-hmm. and you're human. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm better at accepting the fact that, you know, perfection can't be the goal. You know, you just do the best you can. Now, so I saw you on CNN last week. I see you all over the place, Windy City Live. So do you still get nervous? Do you get nervous for TV interviews? Do you get nervous for speaking in front of a group of people? Do you get nervous and deal with it? Or are you past it and you aren't even nervous anymore? It's an interesting question. I am actually no longer nervous. That's amazing. Unless unless I don't feel confident with the subject matter. So what you've been hearing me talk about lately is the tensions between communities of color and law enforcement and and all of the things that I think can be done to bridge that gap of trust. And that's a subject matter where I have very strong feelings and I've, you know, I worked on this for all eight years in the White House. I've been committed to it since then, so I feel like I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And so there, I don't get nervous. Mm-hmm. I did go on Fox yesterday. You know what? That's that's never like that can be fraught. And I have to say, I'm glad I did. I almost I kind of regret not having gone on more because I think part of part of what we all do is if you shy away from something you think will be uncomfortable, then the audience doesn't get to hear you, right? right. And so. I kind of am now of the age of trying to push myself to do things, even if I think they're going to be a little uncomfortable, because I think it's important to do it. And and it's Mm -hmm. good practice, too. You know, we just all need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I'm confident about the subject matter, no, I'm good to go. I actually enjoy it now. And if anyone had told Mm -hmm. me, and I think for your listeners who feel shy or feel insecure or, you know, so many people have the imposter syndrome. Yes. my message is that you can grow out of it if you want to, if you really put your mind to it. And it takes time. And I can't even pinpoint to you when I got comfortable. But now I make my living. I wrote a book. I go on a book tour. I go on the speaking circuit. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of things that I feel like I've learned over the arc of my life. And I enjoy doing it. But it took a lot of hard work. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And growth. You know, growth. Mm-hmm. And that's the hope is that you will. It, but if we hesitate to get outside of our comfort zones, mm-hmm. if we don't, if we don't try to do things that make us, you know, stretch, then how do you grow? Mm-hmm. Right. We don't. And we don't want that. We want to grow. Yeah, we do want to grow. Thank you for that advice. Your book, which I referenced earlier, um, Finding My Voice, When the Perfect Plan Crumbles, the Adventure Begins, you know, I spoke to you earlier about how honest you were uh, in this book, and and you show how you find your voice. We, We can, it's like we are traveling along with you as you grow from the little girl born in Iran to the senior advisor working in the White House reporting directly to President Barack Obama to now being a grandma. And so for listeners who haven't read your book yet, I was wondering if you've had so many major things and so many major accomplishments and successes and 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 things that you that you've dealt with with your family and loss and everything but can you think of maybe three things or events that helped that contributed to your finding your voice yes 
so I'd say the first one was having my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I think it was such a extraordinary sea change for me because I had been kind of following this plan I made up when I graduated from college for 10 years and doing all these things on my checklist. And I, and I was mm-hmm. kind of a passive participant in my life and I wasn't yeah. really feeling fulfilled. And when I had my daughter, I would look at her and I'd go to work every day and I'd say, will she ever be really proud of me? Will she look up to me? Will she respect me the way I respect my mother? And if I continue on this current path. And so she was really the motivation for me to switch careers and go away from the private practice of law and join the administration mm-hmm. of Mayor Harold Washington uh, as as a lawyer for the first five, four years. I would practice law there. And so I give her credit for just like a wake up call to say, are you leading a purposeful life? Are you going to make a difference in the world? And so then I think, and those, those years were extraordinary. I learned how to be an advocate, a fierce advocate, particularly for the people in Chicago who I didn't feel had a voice. And then I, I was there to really advocate for them. And that was just a real growth experience for me. I would say also when I left the city, I took over chairing of the Chicago Transit Authority Board. And I also was um, in the private sector and on some corporate boards. And oftentimes, I would be the only woman or the only person of color in the room. And you, it's a little intimidating, uh, particularly when you're new and you're, you, know, you, you want to represent well. And I was at a board meeting once and I had a question and I didn't ask it. And later, somebody who was much more senior to me and a huge investor in the company, they asked the question. My question. And so later I said to the yeah. guy, I said, you know, I, w- I wondered the same thing. And he's like, why is I said, I thought it was a dumb question. He said, there are no dumb questions. Mm-hmm. You're on the board. You should ask whatever you want to ask. They owe you. That's how they, you hold them accountable. And that was the eye-opening. I've never forgotten that experience. And the third moment when I began to appreciate the use of my voice was when I became a senior advisor to President Obama. So next year, I will have known both President and former First Lady Michelle Obama for 30 years. So we go back a long way. We know each other really well. And when he asked me to come to the White House, uh, he said, I need your voice. I need you to come and tell me what you think. You know, my, you share my values. You have the same priorities that I do. You know what I'm trying to get done. Come with me. Wow. And speak up. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that. And so if I were in a meeting and I wasn't you know, 100% sure of what I was thinking, it was safe. It was okay because he just wanted the benefit of, of my thoughts. And so I think sometimes we, you know, we get feeling like I did in that corporate boardroom. Or, well, is my idea or my question stupid? Well, no, if you're there, mm-hmm. it's going to make people think in ways that they didn't think before. Mm. And you will contribute, which is why I'm such a big believer that diversity is a strength. Because we need to look at issues from all angles, not just our own. Yes. But, I mean, even if he disagreed with me. One time we were having an argument about something, and I was, he caught me on a bad day. And so I was giving him my best argument, and he was disagreeing with me. And then finally I said, okay. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, uh, you're right. And he said, no, no, keep pushing. <laughs> Don't stop. 
I love that. Don't stop. He said I was enjoying it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's right. It is my job to push you. Mm. It's his job to make the decision. Mm-hmm. But it was my job to give him the benefit of my best advice. Yeah. And I think we should all feel that way. Yes. If you have a seat at the table, what a waste if you don't say what you think. And, and what a, a shame if everyone at the table has the exact same voice, the same background. That's a waste. Well, too. It's, it's back to what we were saying earlier, where you're not going to grow. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you the number of times where hearing a different perspective, I thought, well, I hadn't thought about that before. And then yes. either it forces you to make your argument even better, yeah. or you go, well, hey, I changed my mind, and that's okay, too. Yes. Right? That's part of the growth. Yes, yes, absolutely. And keeping on the theme of the voice, in your chapter, The Power of Each Voice, You were talking about women, specifically about Senator Hillary Clinton, and how, like, for many powerful women, this was really so interesting to me, you have to appear strong, which to some means unemotional. You have to put on that face. But if you're too unemotional, then it's said that you have no heart. And it's one of the unfair realities that some women face. And and you said part of finding our voice is learning to not worry so much about how we appear. Instead, it is about being comfortable and showing who we are. So this even just resonates and and speaks to what we were just talking about earlier. But I want to know if you could elaborate on that for our listeners, especially the women piece about how we're worried about appearing too emotional or appearing not emotional and how we're perceived. Sure. So I'll I'll give you an example about myself. When I first was practicing law at a big law firm, I never talked about anything that was happening outside of work. I went in there and I worked hard. I didn't enjoy what I was doing, but I gave it my, you know, my all. And I remember when I was pregnant, I didn't tell anybody I was pregnant because I was afraid that they would think that I wasn't as committed to my job. Mm. Or after I had my daughter, if I wanted to take her to, um, a doctor's appointment, I would say, mm-hmm. well, I'm going to a meeting mm-hmm. because I didn't want people to think mm-hmm. I had a life outside of work. And it's hard to sustain that, really. Mm-hmm. And I and I ended up in part leaving because I felt like I couldn't be my authentic self. And I, at, at the time I left the law firm, I was going through a divorce. So I'm a single mom, right? Mm-hmm. And if I didn't show up, then nobody showed up. So I had to be present in her life and I just found it so exhausting to have to pretend that I wasn't a single mom. And what I loved about working at the city and every place I've worked since I left the law firm is that I've only worked with people who appreciated my whole story. And now now the hitch is this. You have to be willing to make yourself vulnerable mm-hmm. and open up about yourself mm-hmm. and be authentic. And, you know, i in the context of my book, I was reflecting on when Hillary Clinton uh, won the New Hampshire primary when she was running against then Senator Barack Obama. I think part of it was she teared up when somebody said, how hard is this? And she really kind of showed who she is. But when you're the first, when you're the trailblazer, when everybody's looking to you, you're, you're breaking the mold. And it's mm-hmm. hard to do that. And I think the good news is the more women who we have on corporate boards, the more women we have in 
elected office, the easier it is to be who you are. The other night, I was watching CNN. They had a special with four black oh, women mayors, yes. right? Love that. London Bree, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Keisha Lance Bottoms, Atlanta, mm-hmm. Lori Lightfoot, our mayor yes. in Chicago, and Miriam Bowser from Washington, D.C. Interviewed by Laura Coates, an African-American former prosecutor. Yes, and, amazing. And, and you could feel the warmth between the four women. Yes, and respect. And I think there, there is safety in numbers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they all are their authentic selves. Each mm-hmm. one of them in their own way. You know, they are professional, but they are real. Mm-hmm. You, you feel like you know them. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we don't let people know us, then it's hard to lead. It's hard if people, because mm-hmm. people can see through. They can say, well, you know, can I trust you or are you real? Mm-hmm. I think it's part of why what's so attractive about President Obama is that even though he was the first African-American president, people felt they knew who he was. He was comfortable enough in his own skin to show us who he is. Mm-hmm. And always has, as is his wife. Yeah. Uh, his wife is the same way. Michelle Obama, you'd feel like you know her because she's confident enough to mm-hmm. just show you. And okay, and okay, sharing opinions whether you like them or not, and that does give you some sense of of who who these people are. Yes. And thinking yes. back on Lori Lightfoot, who I was just so proud to to have African American female gay to win, and it's so funny how. Her personality comes out every day, and I love her more every day. And she shows her anger. She's still composed. She's still polished. She's still she's still professional. But she lets you know what upsets her and that she's going to do something about it. And I think yes. that we are all so supportive and loving of that, and not just black women, but I think everyone, because you're so right. We, we understand who she is, and she's going to be who she is, and she's going to to bring our city to where it needs to be. So, um, and that night, yes, yes, yes. And that night was great on CNN. I enjoyed that as well. I want to know if we can turn now to what's happening now and how it's interesting how in your book, in your True North chapter, you were talking about the increased incidence of young unarmed black men being killed. And at the time, you know, demonstrations were occurring in Ferguson and um, President Obama was determined to turn this inflection point into an opportunity uh, to improve the bond of trust between communities of color and the police. And here we are still today. But I did want to ask about the president's task force on 21st century policing that was created in that administration. Is it still in place in this current administration? Well, no, which is really profoundly disappointing. It is. And it's interesting that you use, um, I used the word inflection point back then. Because the question I have now is, is this an inflection point or, it is, or is it the beginning of a turning point? Mm. And, and what we hoped in the wake of the death of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, another chokehold example, mm. uh, Laquan McDonald, our hometown, mm-hmm. 16 times shot in the back at Tamir Rice. 
12-year-old boy shot by someone who'd just been fired from an adjacent police department. The list goes painfully on and on to the current uh, climate that we find ourselves in still today. So in the wake of those deaths during President Obama's time in office, he created a 21st century task force on policing. And uh, he had everyone from the former police chief of Philadelphia, who many of you have been watching on television, uh, speaking out. Chuck Ramsey used to be the deputy mm-hmm. commissioner in Chicago back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, to Brittany Packnett, a young demonstrator who worked for Teach for America in Ferguson and had been an instrumental in the demonstrations early on in Ferguson. And experts on law enforcement and reducing de-escalation and evidence-based practices that actually strengthen this bond of trust between police and communities of color. And the task force issued a report with a, with some very clear guidelines. And then President Obama, through his Justice Department, worked with um, the 18,000 law enforcement agencies around the country to try to help them implement changes that would improve the bond of trust. The other thing his Justice Department did that the current Justice Department does not do is through the Justice Department, they would launch pattern and practice investigations, which is what the Justice Department uses to determine whether a case of police brutality is isolated or does that police department have a culture where there Mm -hmm. is a pattern and practice of discriminatory behavior. Mm And I think over 25 of those investigations were launched. Numerous of them ended up in consent decrees between the city and the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those consent decrees were um, supervised by a federal judge to make sure that the federal government that is in charge of civil rights for our country, it is a national issue, a federal issue, was doing everything in its power to force local agencies to observe the civil rights of the black people who lived in their communities. So. All of that work stopped when President Obama left office. The Justice Department doesn't do pattern and practice investigations. The Justice Department doesn't work with local law enforcement agencies to implement the recommendations of the task force. Mm-hmm. But here's the good news. The Leadership Conference, which is an umbrella organi- civil rights organization, has taken on that work. And so they are now working with local law enforcement to try mm-hmm. to implement and update those recommendations. And now we're seeing, finally... Congress might even take action to set some parameters. And so, and so, for example, why do we not recruit and put money in investing how we hire officers? Mm-hmm. I gave you the example of Tamir Rice. Mm-hmm. He was shot by this officer who was fired. Well, the, the um, police department in Cleveland, Ohio, did not know that he'd been fired by Independence, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. We should have a national database. Yes. Our officers yes. should be trained. It's a hard job to go out there and put your life on the line. Why would we send people out with a gun and a badge without training them on de-escalation, which is hard to do when a situation is starting to get emotional? How do you bring down the temperature? How do you lessen it? And we've seen examples of that. Through the demonstrations lately, where police take a knee, they walk with the mm-hmm. demonstrators, they mm-hmm. talk to the demonstrators, that de-escalates. Mm-hmm. Why are we not training our police officers and looking for implicit bias? Everybody has biases. Sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious. Right. We can train for that. There are just so many simple steps that could be taken. Why is anybody allowed to do a chokehold? 
We right. know that it kills people. Right. We know that it kills people. And particularly, why are you doing it when people are begging for your help and saying, I can't breathe? How can that happen uh, in our country? In handcuffs. Right? Yeah. In handcuffs. In handcuffs. Well, how much damage are you going to do when you're in handcuffs? Right. So, so I'm very disappointed that the hard work that we began when President Obama was in office was completely thrown in the garbage can by the Trump administration. And my hope is, is that Congress now will take some action mm -hmm. that will send the message uh, to state and local governments about what they need to do. But also, and actually more importantly, the American people are sending a message, right? Yes, I and love that. everybody has a cell phone now, and it's amazing yeah. to me. It's kind of when you think about what happened in Washington D.C. and Lafayette Square in front of the White House, where the police came in directed to do yeah. so by the Justice Department mm -hmm. with you know rubber bullets and pepper spray, and mm -hmm. and the reaction from the military mm -hmm. who never criticize a sitting president. I yeah. mean, it has to be, it, that's unprecedented. Yeah. And it shows you that there are loyalties to the Constitution and the people who are demonstrating in all 50 states and are continuing to put pressure. I think that's how change happens. So I am regretful that we lost so much ground in the last three and a half years, but heartened by the reaction we're seeing uh, today. Me too. It is so powerful to see so many people um, of all colors. Of yes, all colors, right? Yes, everywhere. It it is all um, ages. Yes, yes, and and you're making me think about the Affordable Care Act as well, and um, I'm still hopeful about that too because it's interesting how things are reversed and things are changed, and I'm hoping that the next president um, puts things back in place and is supportive of the right direction that we were going and, and puts us back on track and that we as Americans make the next president accountable and hold him accountable and put pressures on him from the way I think that we're all learning and growing right now from all of these tragedies. Right. And not just the president. I mean, we should be caring who are our local prosecutors, yes. who's the mayor, who's on the city council, who's in the state legislature. I mean, mm -hmm. in a sense, and we haven't talked about the COVID-19 that we are all mm -hmm. living through as well, this pandemic. It has laid bare disparities that exist, for example, in the black community with mm -hmm. the health outcomes. And it has also been a civic plus and painful one about how important government is to our health and to our livelihood. Yeah. Um, and so as we um, hopefully will emerge, I think it's important for everybody to recognize the importance of voting, that we have to care who who is in all of these different positions that has a say over our lives, and which means we have to be an informed voter as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to get in there and figure out where their positions and do their values and their policies line up with yours. Mm -hmm. I think people are getting it now and understanding uh, the weight of their vote. Uh, and, and so many people like you who have platforms also are saying it so often that I'm hoping that it's it's getting through. But you're right. It's so important from the top all the way to, to even our aldermen and exactly. who, who's, who's over an area that we live in or work in. So we're going to start to wrap this up, and I wanted to also say that introverts, uh, in my opinion, in relation to what's happening right now, may not be out in the crowds protesting because 
like me, I'm not. But I believe that we are all sharing our voices in in different ways, in in ways that we can. And so for me, it's this podcast and, and, and talking to people like you, and I'm learning so much, and I'm serving because I think using your voice and my voice, we're teaching others and, and helping others and serving our communities. And for others, it could be through their art or photography or whatever way, lending support. But I wanted to know from that little shy girl to the woman that you are now, do you have any advice for us, uh, all of our listeners, because we have introverts, extroverts, everyone's listening, and what can we do maybe to help our country right now as we live through COVID and the civic unrest and the trauma associated with both? Do you have any advice for us or call to action for us? So I think to go to the call of action first is to get involved in your community and and vote. And as we talked about, vote for all offices that are over you. You've got to, uh, our government will only be as good as we the people demand it be. But the other thing that I would say is like, be kind. Mm. Be kind to yourself. Yes. Be kind to the people who you come in touch with. And and not just your family and friends, but, you know, when I go in the grocery store now, I appreciate the fact that folks are putting their life on the line, those essential right. workers. Right, me too. You say thank you. I think yeah. so many times people who perform those functions feel invisible because we treat them as though they are invisible. Yeah. And it just takes a minute to say good morning. Mm-hmm. How are you? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've noticed now wearing a mask, People are a lot less friendly with one another, mm-hmm. and I think we're all so scared because of the virus. We don't want to catch it, but mm-hmm. you pass somebody on the street, you can still say good morning. Yes. You can just, and, and be kind to yourselves, and and do surround yourselves, if not physically, virtually, with the people who give you sustenance. I mean, one of the things that I learned over that long arc you described of my life is to pick your friends wisely. Mm-hmm. Pick people to be a part of your life who wish you well, who are rooting for you, who are going to be there when you get knocked down, and then make the effort to invest in them as well. And I, I worry that in this time where we're all on our devices and the social media generation I call uh, the millennials, is, is that they talk at each other, but not as much to and with one another. Mm-hmm. And we are human beings. We need that human interaction. And I think Part of what gives us resilience and the ability to get through what is a really tough time is do unto others as you have them do unto you and be kind to yourself. And so if we can do that at the personal level and be civically engaged, one person can change a room. And if you can change a room, you can change a city. And if you can change a city, you can change a world. Yes, love that. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been wonderful. We've enjoyed having you so much. We support everything you do, and thank you again for joining us today. Well, I've loved our conversation from one introvert to another. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we did pretty well, and thank you for using your voice through this podcast. Thank you so much. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash introverts hush loudly and listen to past episodes at wgnradio.com or hushloudly.com. <laughs>